Well, good morning again. I'm Mark, for those of you that I have not yet met. Nine out of ten people, when faced with the need to change or they will die, will choose death over change. Nine out of ten. Change is hard. <laughs> um, there's a book called Change or Die by Alan Deutschman, where this statistic comes from. And he begins the book by relating his experience of hearing this statistic. Uh, he was at a conference, uh, a medical conference, where, where a bunch of leading experts in the field of medicine were talking about not, uh, you know, not the, the challenges of implementing new technology uh, in the medical field or, or the need for creation of, of, of new drug therapies and things like that, but the challenge that they've faced basically as long as doctors have been around, <laughs> which is the challenge of people and their unwillingness to change. And, and the reality that when they have the information, right, when they know just the things that all of us know, that you, you shouldn't uh, smoke and you shouldn't drink excessively and you should exercise and you shouldn't be stressed and you should eat healthy, when you know those things, even when death is at stake, even when it presented with... Uh, this information from an expert who says, if you don't do these things now, your life is going to be severely shortened. Nine out of ten don't change. Which is crazy to me until I think of the conversations that I have with my dentist about flossing. <laughs> and then I begin to have some sympathy and I recognize, oh yeah, not, just having the information about what's healthy and good for you does not necessarily mean that you will automatically change and make those decisions to put the floss in the shower so that you remember to shower, or remember to floss whenever you shower. Uh, Deutschman, Alan Deutschman, who wrote this book, he goes on to say that often what we turn to uh, when, when we're talking about change or when we're wanting to implement change, often what we turn to is uh, the, what he calls the three Fs. Facts, fear, and force that those are the things that we often default to when we want to implement change, and that they're actually super inadequate for bringing change about. Facts, fear, and force uh, are just not compelling to bring change. So what, what does bring change? What brings conversion? Uh, that's a word that we often use in the church, conversion. It just means change, right? Well, I want us to think about that statistic, and I want to think about that question. How, how do we change? How does conversion happen? Uh, what brings conversion on? As we read through Daniel 4 this morning, we've been walking through the book of Daniel, um, and we're asking this question. Uh, Daniel is the story of Daniel and of some of his friends as they are in exile. And there's some connections that are made between what the experience of the Israelites in exile was and our experience as the church here in the Pacific Northwest in 2017. Really, it's, it's the church throughout all time has been a church in exile in some ways, but we, we feel that acutely here in Cascadia, in the Pacific Northwest. So what does it mean for us to live in exile? So we're going to dive into Daniel 4. I'm not going to have it on the screen. It's a long chapter, so what I'm going to do is kind of read sections and then try to summarize other sections in between. Um, so open your Bibles if you brought them, take out your phone, pull open your, your Bible app, or for those of you that have memorized the Bible, just this Daniel 4, that's where we are. This is an interesting chapter because um, 
Nebuchadnezzar actually is the primary character. It's not Daniel. Daniel appears just for a little bit, um, but Nebuchadnezzar is really who we're looking at, and he's actually the one who's speaking. It's, it's from his, this chapter is from his perspective. Um, it's, it's a recounting of some events that happened to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now this, uh, this is a different sounding King Nebuchadnezzar than we've encountered so far, right? This is the guy who built the statue to himself, to himself and then threw Daniel into the fiery furnace for not worshiping this uh, statue. And so this, this doesn't sound like that king. Clearly, there is a change that has taken place. There is a conversion of some sort that has happened, that he would even begin this decree that's going out to his entire kingdom, that he would begin it with such praise of God. He goes on, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. But I had a dream, and the dream made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So he does what he's done before. He brings in his trusted advisor, his advisors, the, the people that are his, his confidants, that, that, that kind of, uh, they're magicians, soothsayers, and they're kind of his yes men, right? They're the people that are going to make this okay, this terrible dream. They're going to tell him what he wants to hear. And either they're too afraid to tell him the interpretation of a dream, or they just can't, and they refuse. And then the king remembers Daniel. He remembers this guy that he brought from Jerusalem, uh, he kind of a, one of the spoils of war, if you will, that he brought to Babylon to train up to be a good Babylonian, to, be, uh, uh, to enculturate in Babylonian culture. He remembers Daniel interpreted a dream for me. Let's bring Daniel in. So he brings Daniel in, and he describes the dream for Daniel. And he sees, in his dream, he saw this tree, this magnificent tree. It reached up to the sky. It provided shade and shelter and nourishment for all of these animals. And then it's cut down, and the limbs are stripped bare, and only a stump is left. And then, uh, um, and then the, the language shifts, and, and it's, uh, the messenger says, you're going to um, go out into the wilderness. Your mind, you're going to lose your mind, and you're going to be living like the animals. You're going to have the mind of an animal until you acknowledge that the Lord is the Most High. Right? This is actually in verse 17 here. Uh, the decision that all this is going to happen is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that, so this, this is the purpose of all of this, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So he says, Daniel, help, help me interpret this. What's going on? And... Just a little aside, uh, this is actually not that hard of a dream to interpret, <laughs> if you're paying attention. Um, and so, uh, you know, whether it's fear that keeps the king from applying this dream to himself, or whether it's just his own blind ambition, his, his own sense of grandeur that clearly this can't apply to me because I'm so great. But nonetheless, he seeks out wisdom from Daniel. 
And Daniel interprets the dream. He says, actually, that tree is you. Uh, you have a wonderful kingdom. It's amazing, and it's going to end. And uh, there's a stump that's going to be left once you turn to acknowledge that God is God and you are not. There will be a remnant of your kingdom that will return to you. And then Daniel finishes his, uh, his interpretation with a plea, an emotional plea to the king to change his ways. He says this, Therefore, your majesty, please accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. King Nebuchadnezzar goes on, uh, and we pick up his life a year later, 12 months later. The king is walking on the roof of his royal palace, surveying his great kingdom, and he says, Is not this the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And at that moment, he loses his mind, and he experiences, actually, his own exile. He's exiled from his kingdom. He goes out. He lives like an animal. He's, he's lost his mind. And seven years go by, and he lifts his eyes towards heaven. Heaven. And at the end of that time, this is picking up in verse 34 here. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, here's his, here's his testimony, right? Testimony of conversion. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we trust that you have a word for us this morning in it, this encounter between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, speak to us about what it is to be your people, to be your church here in this day and age. Teach us, Lord, our ears and our hearts and our minds are open to you. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Daniel asking a few questions. One of the questions we're always asking as we walk through Scripture is, what does this show us about God? What does this reveal about God's character and God's nature? And then the other question is, what does this reveal about us? Uh, and in particular in Daniel, we're looking at it through the lens of, what does this reveal about us as Christ followers here and now in the experience of living in exile? So uh, first, what does this reveal about God? And it's a strange story, admittedly. It's a strange uh, encounter that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sends out in this decree. But uh, one of the things that we see about God is his mercy and his grace, even through judgment. 
The king is presented with a number of opportunities, multiple opportunities to turn, to repent, to turn towards God, to turn away from the way that he had been living and to turn towards God. He's presented with uh, this in his dream, right? The angelic messenger says, look, all of this, the purpose of all of this uh, is that the living would know that the most high is sovereign, that you are not king, that you, everything that you have you have received as a gift from God, and, and your role is to steward that. Then, then Daniel, as he interprets the dream, gives another invitation to the king. He says, turn, turn from your ways. Treat the oppressed well. Do, do your job as God would have you do it. And then, even though the king essentially ignores all of this advice, there is still, yet again, mercy shown to him at the end of those seven years when he lifts his eyes towards heaven and acknowledges that God is God and he is not. And to me, this is evidence of God's mercy and grace and, and the priority that God has in writing our relationship with him, that that is the most important thing and that God will use whatever means necessary to make us aware of the, of the importance of our relationship with him. This is not judgment just because God delights in punishing King Nebuchadnezzar, though he certainly deserved some of it. Uh, the, the purpose, which the angel makes clear, which Daniel makes clear, and which the whole story makes clear, the purpose is restoration of that relationship with God. It's an example to me of God's patience with us, leading us to conversion. The, the Apostle Peter says this, that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that God is willing to use whatever circumstances in our lives, whatever means necessary to, to help restore those relationships, restore that, that primary relationship with him. So I think that's one of the things that we can take away from this passage about what, is, what, does God, um, what is God like? What are the characteristics of God? He's merciful. As we look at the question of what does this reveal about us as the church? How are we to live in exile? Um, I think that this chapter gives us an example of what conversion in exile looks like. How does this happen? How does, how does someone come to faith? How does someone change? Especially given the fact that those cultural forces that may have been in play, say, 50 years ago, when it was culturally normal to go to church on a Sunday morning, culturally normal to read your Bible, um, those pressures no longer exist, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's, it's in many other places as well. But I mean, it's, it's unusual that you are here in church on a Sunday morning, right? You know this, that this is not normal. <laughs> that most of your friends, coworkers, uh, they are, are not in church this morning. Um, and so those, those cultural forces to conversion that, that, that we may have relied on in the past, those are no longer uh, at work. And I think that's actually a healthy thing. But that is the reality. King Nebuchadnezzar is described, he, he describes himself at home in his palace, contented and prosperous, flourishing, right? He's, he's doing well. Everything's in its right place. And I think that is a pretty apt description of most people's perception of their own lives here in this city and in this region. Um, Obviously, not everyone is experiencing the prosperity in this region, but by and large, there's a lot of prosperity in this region. Uh, and I think that 
when people experience that, uh, there is a tendency when, when their physical needs, needs are met in that way, there's a tendency for a dulling of the sense of their other needs, spiritual needs, relational needs. Uh, I think this is why Jesus says that it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I think when we have those, uh, when our lives are prosperous materially, uh, we can be dulled to the other needs that we have. And so, trying to convince people of their need for the gospel becomes a challenge, right? It's, a, it's difficult because people aren't uh, tuned in always. And you and I, maybe, are not always tuned in to our sense of need. So Nebuchadnezzar is at ease. Everything is provided for. Um, until, until it is not. Until he has this dream, until he, his comfort and his ease is disrupted by this dream. And as I mentioned before, it's, it's really not a very challenging dream to interpret. I'm not sure that a special a miraculous gift of God was necessary <laughs> to, to make sense of this dream for him. Um, but he was either so blinded by his own uh, power and glory that he couldn't interpret it or was afraid that maybe this applied to him and he, he didn't want to do it. So his go-to coping mechanism, his advisors, uh, he, he turns to them and, and they, they can't provide for him. They can't tell him that everything's going to be okay. So he remembers Daniel, calls Daniel, Daniel interprets it and invites the king to change, to convert. I, uh, I'm in a small group of a number of people that, um, you've probably heard me talk about the Cascade Fellows before. A number of you have gone through this curriculum. And we just read an article written by a professor up at Regent College named John Stackhouse. And the article was about the challenge of, of sharing our faith in this culture, in this day and age. The challenge of evangelism, the challenge of witness, or, or as he calls it, the challenge of commending Christianity in Cascadia. It's very alliterative, it's nice. Commending Christianity. How do we commend Christ? How do we commend our faith to others? Um, it used to be when I was growing up that the biggest challenge to do that was apologetics, right? If you could prove the reasonableness uh, and prove how true and how historically accurate uh, the Bible was, then you could get people, right? That was, that was the question that people were asking, and so if you had those answers, that's what could get people into the faith, is if you could prove the truth of the Scriptures. Um, but I don't think that that's the question that people are asking anymore. And so to give that answer to a question that people aren't asking is kind of a fruitless endeavor. John Stackhouse wrote this article uh, acknowledging this, acknowledging that this is a challenge, that in, in this relatively prosperous region where people, uh, it's not just the prosperity, it's, it also has to do with uh, people's, just their sense that I can decide for myself what is ultimately true and right. And so I'm going to decide that the life I'm already living is basically true and right for me. And so I'm good, right? I'm good. I don't, there's not a sense of need. And as we come to the gospel, the good news. The good news can't be the good news unless we understand some sense of need there. So that is a, that's a challenge for how we communicate this. Until there are these moments that everyone has at some point or at many points in our lives 
these moments of crisis, these moments where our go-to coping mechanisms don't work anymore. Maybe it's a job that we've put a lot of our identity into and we lose that job. Maybe it's a relationship that we've put a lot of our identity into and that relationship ends. Maybe it is the fact that we don't have the resources at our disposal that everyone around us seems to have. Things are tight. Maybe it's the fact that we're new here and we feel lonely and we feel disconnected. Whatever it is, these are moments where that veneer of I'm fine, everything's okay, that veneer is cracked. And reality of maybe I'm not fine. Maybe the things I've turned to, to for support, um, those resources I, I've, I've gone to that I think are sustaining me, uh, that, that well is dry. Those are the moments when conversion is possible. Those are the moments when conversion becomes attractive. I want to read just a couple of paragraphs from this article. Uh, and I'll send this, a link out to this in the email this week if you want to follow up. It's a fantastic, short, wonderful article. So I, he's speaking here about the sort of generic person in our area, in our region, in this day and age. I must be experiencing a significant breakdown, or at least a painful inadequacy in my ability to cope. I'm open to changing my way of thinking and being to something else. And the something else will most likely win my allegiance if it is offered by someone attractive and trustworthy who can both tell me and show me an alternative. Furthermore, if the alternative is significantly different from my current paradigm, I will be all the more likely to convert to it if it's presented to me within a community, a community of attractive and trustworthy people who believe it and practice it. Thus forming, I love this phrase here, thus forming a community of plausibility. That's the church, right? We're a community of plausibility. We form this community of plausibility in which what I previously would have found difficult to take seriously, difficult to consider, now appears worthy of serious consideration. Christianity in Cascadia, therefore, must offer an alternative that is plausible and attractive in ways that correspond to these felt needs that people have. My job ended. A relationship ended. I'm experiencing some sort of crisis in my life. And the alternative must be different enough to make conversion worthwhile, but it also has to be similar enough to make conversion imaginable. I have to be able to look at some people and say, oh, I can see myself living that way. That makes sense. That's helpful. That's actually beautiful. This is one respect in which Christianity must be in the world, but not of it. That's a phrase that we've been encountering a lot as we talk about life in exile, to be in the world, but not of it. And being people who together are a community of plausibility uh, allows people who are experiencing these crises moments, these, these moments where that veneer of, uh, of success and prosperity is cracked, to say, okay, that, that seems like maybe, maybe following Christ, maybe Jesus has something to say to me here. Maybe the, maybe the church has something to show me here. So there, there's two ways that I, I see this in Daniel in chapter 4 that I think I would love for us to mull over 
and to think about as we go about our lives this week. Um, the first is that Daniel kind of, you know, so he's not a community, he's just a person, but he becomes the community of plausibility for Nebuchadnezzar. He's a trustworthy individual. He has shown himself to be excellent at his job. Daniel's really good at what he does. I mean, he's brought over as one of the spoils of war, but he proves himself to be uh, really wise and really good at his job. And Nebuchadnezzar takes note of that. And he's shown himself to be trustworthy. Earlier on, he, he interprets another dream for the king, and he's, he's been a faithful, steady witness to God in exile. He's shown that it's possible, that it's plausible to honor God. The other thing that Daniel does is that he's, he's ready. He's ready to answer the king's questions. He's ready to interpret the dream. He's ready to speak truth when the moment is right. We've been looking at 1 Peter as kind of a companion book to Daniel. 1 Peter talks a lot about what is it for the church to be in exile. He writes this to the church. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. And it was a risk. I mean, it was a real risk that Daniel took, speaking this kind of message to the king. It was not, not uncommon for the king to shoot the messenger if the message was not good news. So Daniel took a risk in telling him, Ultimately, this is good news, but on the way to good news, it's some bad news. And that's the gospel message, right? It's good news, but you've got to be willing to acknowledge your sin and your need, which can be heard as bad news. Anyways, back to this. Uh, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. This is First Peter. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. So Daniel is a person of plausibility, and he is ready when the king is ready, when the moment is right, to give an answer to that question, to reflect on what is true, and to tell the king not necessarily the things that he wanted to hear, but the things that he needed to hear, speaking the truth. So some questions for us, maybe, as we consider Daniel's role in the king's life, as we consider what it looked like for the king, the king, to have a conversion experience, to change. First is this, how would you articulate the hope that you have? How would you articulate the gospel? Every month, on the first Sunday of the, first Sunday of the month, we uh, recite together the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is this short distillation of the essential truths of the Christian faith that the church has, has landed on throughout, uh, for thousands of years now. We, we've said, this is the core of what we believe. So we say that together using the same language. But then the challenge is for each one of you to take those truths and to articulate them in your own voice, in your own life, in ways that the people around you can understand and hear. So how would, you, how would you articulate the description of your hope, the good news about Jesus? And then secondly, how are we as sanctuary church, as a particular expression of God's big C church, how are we a community of plausibility here in Greenwood for your neighbors that you might invite to come here? How are we living in such a way that it's, it's compelling and attractive as people face, inevitably, these crises moments, these moments where the resources that had been at their disposal no longer work, 
no longer bring them the comfort that they once did. When they lose that job, when that relationship ends. And it's, it's hard to ask that question and not also ask the question of, of, you know, who are those people that are coming to your mind right now? We've been talking about the five, right? Who you, who, every now and then we, we, we ask this question at our council level. We, we, we ask it here at church. Who are the five people that, um, again, following Daniel's example, not that you need to go and knock on their door right now, but the five people that you need to simply live that faithful life in front of so that when a moment of crisis or uh, you know, uh, something challenges the status quo in their life, they, they have some sense of who they might turn to, presenting to them a plausible option for the faith, a, a way in which the Christian faith looks attractive. So once a month we recite the Apostles' Creed as a reminder of the gospel, but every week we come to this table to remind ourselves what Nebuchadnezzar needed reminding of. To remind ourselves that, that God is God and that we are not. The, the very end of this decree that's going out to all of Babylon, he says this. He says, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Now, we can, we can read that, and that can sound like a God who wields his power um, and, and one that we should be afraid of. And, and there is a sense in which, yes, we, we need to fear the Lord. But this table answers the question of, okay, God does as he pleases. Well, what is it that pleases God? And this table shows us that God takes pleasure in coming to us. He took pleasure in taking on the form of a human, moving into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson puts it, offering to us forgiveness, offering to us grace. This table gives us sustenance to be that community of plausibility, to be people that can acknowledge our own weakness, our own limitations. We don't have to be afraid of that because we know what the body and the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf teaches us that we are not sufficient for life, for our own salvation, but that he is. So I'm going to take a moment just to sit with some of these questions from this passage that I've asked to prepare our hearts to come and receive the bread and the cup, to acknowledge our need, which is the only thing that is required of you as you come to communion this morning. Lord, we do acknowledge our need before you. Whether we have much in terms of material possessions or not, we know, we know, we know that we need you. That everything that we have in this life is gift from you. That our sin is not just the, the bad actions that we do, but our, our, our sin is deeper than that. It's so mixed in with our motivations and our thoughts and our actions and the things that we do and the things that we don't do and that we are constantly in need of your forgiving grace. 
Would you reassure each one here that you remove our sins from us as far as east is from the west? That Christ, as you died on the cross for us, you took the penalty of our sin, paying it on our behalf and offering to us eternal life, life that starts now and goes on through all eternity. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, would you sustain us to be a community of plausibility, to be your church in this world? reflecting the beauty of Christ to our neighbors, to our family members, to our co-workers, to this whole world. We are unable to do it on our own and we need your spirit to fill us, to energize us, so that we can be like Daniel, faithful in exile, flourishing in exile, We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first.